Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. The Wind Rises takes a look into the life of Jiro Horikoshi, the man who designed Japanese fighter planes during World War II. It's available on demand now and features the voices of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, William H. Macy, and Elijah Wood. Daniel Radcliffe is burned out by a string of failed romances before meeting and falling in love with a girl who lives with her boyfriend. Also starring Zoe Kazan, What If premieres on demand on November 25th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. And this week on the show, Allison and I try to psych each other out by threatening to eat one another's pets. Sorry, Kirby. As we discuss Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And I don't even have a pet. Sorry, Kirby. <laughs> Later in the show. I just want to eat my dog. <laughs> basically. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. And in honor of Batman Returns, we were going to talk about other movies all about the DC character Batman. And then I locked myself in the bathroom sobbing about how I'd wasted my life until we decided to talk about female antiheroes instead. But first up is opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies On Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this week? Well, before, just very quickly before we get to that first pick, can I still do the whole movie in my Michael Keaton Batman voice? Is that acceptable? I, I give or you my, my Christian blessing. Bale Batman voice? Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Which one, which one should I do? Michael Keaton. Things change. Okay, Christian Bale. <laughs> Swear to me. <laughs> Let's go with the Michael Keaton if you we're gonna stick with one. You like that one? Uh, yeah, there's a little more modulation there, you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, maybe I'll let's. It's gonna hurt my throat. It's already. I can feel it already. Potentially doing that for an hour and twenty minutes. It's maybe. the hardest part of being Batman. I think it really is. is. Really not the not your not parents being brutally murdered in front of you. Yeah. Not the life of lo loneliness. Not the physical. Not difficulty. eating nothing. You know. Not eating nothing but chicken and vegetables, steamed vegetables right. every day for the rest Getting of your life. Getting almost killed all the time. It's the voice. It's the voice. It's, it's a real. It's struggle. really tough on your throat. <coughs> a lozenge. <laughs> I need. <laughs> A lozenge. 
All right. Well, appropriately enough, our first pick on uh, opening break is actually a comic book movie, given our Listener's Choice review. And it's actually Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, which is now available on VOD and is directed by Robert Rodriguez and Frank Miller. And this comes almost a decade after the original Sin City movie, which... I don't know, Allison, if you think so, but I think it probably doesn't get enough credit for being as influential as it as it was. I think in terms of the look of comic book movies, it was very comic booky, and instead of sort of uh, tamping down that and trying to make a serious, you know, movie, it really embraced its comic bookness, which I think has become much more in vogue than it was then, and and that all green screen approach, which it certainly didn't invent, but the fact that it was shot on green screen and then all painted in by digital artists. That has really become, uh, it was you know fairly revolutionary at the time and is now a huge part of Hollywood filmmaking. So I don't know why it took 10 years to make this follow-up, but it is here now. You have some returning cast members like Mickey Rourke as Marv, Jessica Alba as Nancy, Bruce Willis as John Hardigan, the, uh, the cop. Uh, but there are also new cast members as well. Josh Brolin, who replaces Clive Owen as one of the characters. Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Ava Green, who is the titular lady to murder people in order to gain favor with. I, I don't know why that didn't become the subtitle. I think that has a nice ring. Sin City, a lady to murder people in order to gain favor with. I like that. Nice. I think, I think it worked. What did it feel like? What? Murdering an innocent man. I just want to know what it felt like. It must have been beautiful. What are you talking about, innocence? I knew I could count on you. Sex always made you stupid, ready to believe anything. <laughs> You've just made me a very rich woman. Do me one last favor, lover. Stay still long enough for me to blow your brains out. The film did not do as well with critics or, or with audiences as the original Sin City. Um, perhaps the... the Things that made Sin City unique, you know, they're not as unique anymore, besides the fact that it's the second film, so by definition it is not as unique. Um, I don't know, maybe it's time has passed, I'm not really sure. But, I mean, this is, to me, this is a perfect VOD movie, right? It's something you might have missed on the big screen, maybe you didn't want to pay full ticket price to see it, but you're still interested in it, you're still curious, you know, you, you'll pay five bucks to see it, you'll pay seven bucks to see it. I mean, that's definitely me, uh, uh, you know, I still like the original movie enough i I've, i watched it not that long ago and didn't think it held up all that well it can be a little numbing yeah it can be a little numbing it can be a little you know cartoonish i don't think is necessarily an insult because you know i like cartoons you know uh and but in this case it's not even like cartoonish like cartoonishly violent although i guess it's that it's just more i don't know frank miller's sort of you know, uh, macho attitude is so extreme, I think, that maybe at, at times that comes off as a little cartoonish. But I, I'm still curious enough about this movie, and I want to check it out, partially because of Frank Miller, who wrote and drew the original comics. He co-directed both movies with Robert Rodriguez. In this case, though, there's actually several segments that are original stories that aren't based on any comic books. And in the first movie, they were all based on Sin City comics and they were obsessive about getting the visuals exactly right, making it look just like the comics. So I'm sort of interested to see, will I be able to tell the difference? Will a Sin City story written for the screen look and feel any different than a Sin City story that was originally written for the comics? I think that's kind of interesting. So I'm interested in finally catching up with this. That's Sin City, a dame to kill for, or if you prefer, Sin City, a lady to murder people in order to gain favor with. And that's available now on VOD. Quickly now, let's go through two more quick VOD picks. The first one is available now, and it's called Reach Me. 
It is directed by John Hertzfeld with an incredible cast, including an incredibly eclectic cast as well. Sylvester Stallone, Kira Sedgwick, Terry Crews, Thomas Jane, Kelsey Grammer, and Tom Berenger. It's like half the Expendables and half the not Expendables, I guess. Here's the plot description here, which I found, I believe, on Wikipedia, which is never inaccurate in any way. This inspirational film with elements of comedy, romance, crime, and drama tells interwoven stories from a diverse group of people who are united by one thing, a powerful book published by an unknown, mysterious author. When the book's positive message goes viral, a journalist and his editor, a former inmate, a hip-hop mogul, an actor, and an undercover cop. I believe those are all different people, not one person who is described by all those things, although that would be interesting, are inspired to change their lives by facing their own fears. Uh, I don't know much about this one other than that cast. Uh, it has Sylvester Stallone, who I've I now have, I guess I've now technically I've seen every single movie he's ever made or appeared in. So it feels like I have to watch this. Otherwise, I will lose the credibility of being an expert on his on his work. Um, so that's Reach Me available now. And finally, a movie I'm sure if Allison hasn't seen it yet, she's going to watch. I can tell this sounds like an Allison movie. If any movie ever has, it's called Wolves. It's available now on VOD. Here's the description of this one. High school senior Caden Richards, played by Lucas Till, must flee his small town after the murder of his parents, leaves him a prime suspect. Not mentioned in that plot description. Werewolves. Lots of werewolves. Like clans of werewolves fighting each other and turning into wolves. And Jason Momoa is in it as well. Who I I'm, guessing, I'm guessing you're a huge fan of I him. I love Jason Momoa. See, I knew that. Wait, I knew have, the... we, have we talked about how... Jason Momoa is like a thwarted Terrence Malick fan. Like all he wants to do is make Terrence Malick really? inspired movies. Yes. I'm sure. He's like a huge cinephile who is constantly cast as like barbarians <laughs> who don't get any lines. He played Conan in the Conan remake. Right. He was who, I don't know his he character in Game Drogo of Thrones. Yeah. In Game of Thrones. Yes. And I'm sure his Aquaman movie, he's now been cast as right. Aquaman in the Justice League and he's going to get his own solo film. I'm sure that will have Terrence Malick-esque uh, sure. qualities. Dolphin, whale, <laughs> you swim within me always, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, this is Wolves. It's directed by David Hayter, who wrote uh, or co-wrote, I suppose, X-Men, X2, Watchmen. And I'm sure this also has a lot of Malik X touches as they're all turning into werewolves and biting and eating each other and whatnot. But yeah, you haven't seen that one yet, I'm assuming. I have not. But you will see this one, I'm assuming. I'm sure I will. Yes, you will. So that's Wolves, and that is also available now on BOD. <laughs> She's all you'd ever want She's the kind I'd like to flaunt And take to dinner But she always knows her place She's got style, she's got grace She's a winner She's a lady episode we are talking about movies with female anti-heroes in them and i feel like one of the main points you have to discuss when talking about this topic is that there just aren't that many right there there are many many movies and television shows about male anti-heroes it's a classic it's as kind of classic a character type as your hero absolutely and these days maybe even more common very than the traditional yes, hero yes Especially on television. Yes, television loves an anti-hero. Uh -huh. But uh, we don't really 
I feel like media really struggles with what a female anti-hero looks like. Hmm. Um, but I don't know. What do you think? Did you find when looking for movies that like a many came to mind? No, they, no, they, you're definitely right that there are certainly not as many female anti-heroes or anti-heroines as anti, as male anti-heroes. And it, and it's funny because like that, that term is so, you know, anti-heroines like, okay, you, you can instantly understand what that is, but I don't know if that I'd ever heard anyone use that term before you used it in an email to me this week as we were discussing what to talk about. And when we decided on this topic, you're like, well, let's do anti-heroines. And I was like, oh, that's perfect. And it's like, has anyone ever used that word before? <laughs> Did Allison just invent it? And I'm sure someone has used it, but you know, the, the term anti-hero is so pervasive and popular and as you said, particularly on television now, I mean, there was so there's been books written about it recently about the anti heroes I mean, like of the, television. The quality drama, which is ushered in this whole like age of the television, Sopranos, is entirely Mad based Men. around right, like yes, the they're always about a strong anti Breaking Bad, Breaking like Bad, classic, like right, like the kind of it's about b- the idea of liking an anti-hero. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, they, they're, they're harder to find. One thing I found though, among the movies that I was looking at was some of them, including uh, both of the movies I'm going to talk about actually pretty popular and successful. And you, then you go, well, if they do well, why aren't there more of them? And I don't know if that is just a gender bias thing in Hollywood. Maybe it is. Um, but a lot of them are successful, which is, I found interesting is that there's not a ton of them, but it's not like you could say, well, people have tried and it doesn't work. It's like people have tried and they tend to be successful. So really, it, it really only asks the question further, like, really, why aren't there as many of them? I don't know. Do you have any get answer? I think that there's just an inherent concern. And I think one that's more based on the people who are making movies than audiences, as you say, that that about likability in female characters that we want that we are more cons- like we're worried that that female characters need to be likable that they need to be kind of good i mean oftentimes especially in these anti-hero like in the anti-hero television shows the, there are female characters there who are there as the voice of morality right like yes the ones who are who are so, even if they're very imperfect but they're they're the ones who are supposed to be are always being like when are you going to get out of this business right or like what are you doing like you know that and, it, and 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 it's funny because you know as you're describing this, I feel like what we often see is when there are, I don't even know if they qualify as anti heroines, but but female characters who are doing things that we wouldn't consider correct or right or moral or whatever, those are always the ones that get the think pieces about you know this character shouldn't be doing this or this is a poor portrayal of this or that, and it's like the standards are not equal. Like <laughs> you know like nobody writes like Tony Soprano shouldn't be doing this, or I guess maybe occasionally, but. But really no, not mean, not to the same degree that uh, that that the same sort of female characters get it. It seems like it's totally ba- unbalanced in the other direction. Yeah, well, I, I you know it's that worry always when you're like there aren't as many in in general like main characters in movies if you average them out, I'm sure like are still mostly male, right? Like yeah. percentage wise. Yeah. Uh, and then when you're underrepresented on screen, then there tends to be this sense of a burden to be like, right. you have to be representative. Right? Yeah, that's you a good point. You have to be a good example. A strong female character, right, unfortunately, tends to get de- like described as like someone who maybe is carrying a gun 
and it was like capable of doing physically strong things or something like that, but not a strong character in the sense that they're interesting and complicated. Right, richly and developed flawed. and nuanced yes. and complex and right. not necessarily singular. Yeah. We still have a tougher time with that, and I think it's unfortunate. It is, and I, I keep waiting for, like, I don't know, uh, you're more the TV expert than I am, but I sort of keep waiting for the female, like, Sopranos or, like, the show that's going to really right. do for that for the female anti-heroine is that do we have one yet are you well, gonna i think that the shows that have done something close to the equivalent of yeah. like at least having like difficult female characters mm -hmm. They've all been comedies or comedy-ish huh. things, like girls, right? Like which, right, and that's sort of what I was thinking right. about in or terms of those weeds. think pieces. Weeds. Weeds. Oh, that's or, true. Or I would say Orange is the New Black. Oh, yeah. You Orange know? is the New Black is a good example. Yeah. I, the, you could you definitely, I mean, those characters, they're certainly not quote-unquote heroes. Heroes, right. They're yeah. flawed. And Nurse Jackie as well. Like these, mm. But these are all, it's interesting that the the kind of, the quality drama, like the serious quality drama. Right. Been very masculine. Ve but like that when, and I think these shows are kind of coming into their own right now, a lot of them. But yeah, they've been very, you know, at their darkest mixes of comedy and drama. But like there's a distinct comedy element in most of them. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think there's more discussion to be had here, but I think we should get to our picks. But I, yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point that you raise. I hadn't really thought about it at all, but it's true. So but we're going to talk about movies more now, though. Our picks are, are all films, I think. Correct? Yes. All right. So why don't, why don't you go first? What is your first anti-heroine you want to recommend here? Okay. I wanted to go back back to the early days of film because, interestingly enough, in those pre-code uh, days, there were a lot more complicated yes. female characters before yes. it was decreed that Hollywood had to have a moral code to abide, you know, and that comeuppances had to be had and, like, lessons had to be learned. Uh, and so I wanted to take a look at a film that's kind of famous for being groundbreaking in, in having a character who does things that don't fit that code and doesn't necessarily get, you know, punished at the end. And that film is Babyface, which you can find streaming on Warner Archive Instance, which is a great service, but I know not necessarily a lot of people subscribe to that. Uh, you can also find it for rent if you are not a Warner Archive Instant subscriber. But this is a film from 1933, directed by Alfred E. Green, and is considered one of the films that caused the production code to start being enforced the year after it came out. Um, and it's a film starring uh, Barbara Stanwyck as Lily Powers, who is living with her father in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, where he runs a speakeasy. And she is basically his help and also has been she he kind of pimps her out to various men and clientele in order to especially keep his speakeasy from being shut down and uh, she is encouraged by a friendly cobbler who gives her Nietzsche books and uh, as, as most cobblers as most have cobblers handy do, at all times and encourages her to make something of herself because she has power and as he says to her you must use men, not let them use you. And uh, after her father dies in a, st in a still accident, she heads off to New York City uh, with her friend Chico and basically la decides on this bank that is based in this like skyscraper called the B Gotham Trust Bank and very methodically starts sleeping her way up the ladder in the film as she like moves from department to department and from like conquest to conquest, the film pans up the outside of the building 
as she, it'll be like this department, and then she yeah, moves she up literally to the next sleeps her way to the top of the building. Yes, uh, absolutely. That's what makes me mad with you. You're a coward. I mean it. You let life defeat you. You don't fight back. What chance has a woman got? More chance than men. A woman, young, beautiful like you, can get anything she wants in the world because you have power over men. But you must use men, not let them use you. You must be a master, not a slave. Look, here. Nietzsche says, all life, no matter how we idealize it, is nothing more nor less than exploitation. That's what I'm telling you. Exploit yourself. And she definitely, like, ta- she, like, literally is shown to, to get her, w- get, like, take advantage of people or kind of, like, get her way from the very beginning when it, she's discovered in, uh, in a railroad car trying to get to New York. She very, like, uh, openly will pick a man and kind of, like, hang on to him for a while until someone higher up comes along and then she'll latch on to him. And I, I think this is held together particularly by uh, Stanwyck's just like wonderfully steely performance in that she can turn on the charm and the movie like shows her in the soft focus when she's smiling and kind of flirting, but then she's just dead inside <laughs> when they, when she's not trying to, to, to seduce someone. And she's just kind of wonderfully uh, matter of fact about it and like wonderfully calculated about it. Um, and, and has so much kind of tamped down anger that, uh, that fuels her as she, she climbs the ladder. And I think that I just love that it's so, she's so unapologetic and the film is so unapologetic about, about her path to the top. She, even when she encourages, encounters pushback, it's not part of some inevitable downfall that's going to catch her up. It's more like when, when the film has its conclusion, it's based more around her kind of opening up as a human being. And also this movie is only 70 minutes long. And you know, it was, there was a cut it, initial cut for, um, for morality purposes that softened it a little, but it is still remarkably fleet. It, it actually is really funny in that way in that, it'll go from her smiling at someone to a cut to her being set up uh, as a kept woman in in an apartment somewhere. Like it skips all she, it skips kind of a lot of the development process to just show how much she accomplishes by seducing someone. And uh, the efficiency of that makes it work really well. It doesn't linger over uh, her various, like what she had, like, what she has to do to get by. Uh, it just shows what she manages to get out of all of these things. Uh, and I, I think like given that this movie is 80 plus years old, it still feels remarkably daring in one showing a woman who's been treated terribly in the beginning and then to showing how much she triumphs uh, towards the end. And I think it's, doesn't say much for Hollywood if an 80-year-old film still feels still daring. Feels, I know. Uh, but I, I, you know, it's really, there's something really admirable about it. It feels very, it feels so sharp. It feels so sharp-edged. Um, and, you know, if this is a movie that you've heard about more than and haven't had a chance to see yet, and it is one that gets talked about a lot uh, for good reason, it's it's worth a look. It goes down very easily and is also 
it as I said, it feels pretty daring still. And I felt very daring at the time. Um, but that's Babyface, and it is currently streaming on Warner Archive Instant. Okay, it's a great pick. I hope I do hope people who you know if they haven't seen it before they do check it out because it is uh, it, it still is kind of shocking, which is in and of itself is a shocking concept that an eighty year old movie can you know shock you. And uh, yeah, I, I suppose an an old movie might shock you with like backwards values or like you know with the uh, you know racism or something like that this is the opposite where it feels very forward thinking you know oh, yeah and that well, we and don't not just that it's it's like literally it's saying the system is not going to treat you well right you know like you have no like y- you owe nothing to being a good girl a quote-unquote good girl in the system because that will do nothing for you right you know like use the powers that you have and you know use them to get ahead right exactly exactly my first pick is a, a little is a little more recent film uh, or two films i suppose from 2003 and 4 they are volumes 1 and 2 of kill bill and um, this is one of the first movies i thought of when allison suggested this topic and i i don't think i have seen it since it, they came out um, and i didn't have time to rewatch volume 2 but i rewatched volume 1 yesterday and uh, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but part of the reason I was particularly interested in, in picking this one and talking about it was that I was, you know, I wrote this piece earlier this week at ScreenCrush.com uh, um, about movies with part ones and part twos, uh, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay, part one is out just out in theaters. And I was really frustrated by that movie for the fact that it really felt like half of a story to me. So when I realized this was a, a prime opportunity to revisit this, a movie that I enjoyed when it came out, but is divided in half, I was kind of curious, like, what does this, what did this movie do well that didn't bother me? Um, and I think part of it is ju- uh, just the fact that it has, it, it feels like it was, I guess it wasn't necessarily designed to be released in two parts, but it, it, it fits that format better because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's episodic. It's episodic, exactly. It's b- broken into chapters, so that even volume one has like whatever three or four chapters, and then volume two has a couple more chapters, and it and the the t- chronology is so scrambled anyway. So it really does feel like you could have broken this movie up into into a serial, and each chapter could have been released right. separately. And so she has all these different people to track down and encounter. Right, and yeah. and and the bride played by Uma Thurman is not spending the whole movie in a bunker somewhere looking at TV screens and having conversations. <laughs> the whole movie she's globe hopping, she's killing people that she wants to have her revenge against. And I think what's interesting about the character is that it really is such a prototypical like anti-hero. Not an anti-heroine, but it has a, you know, the bride. It is a female character in this role. I mean, the, the idea of you've been wronged by someone and now you're going to go get them and, and get your revenge is, I mean, that is the classic anti-hero of millions of westerns and spaghetti westerns and black exploitation movies. All the movies that you know uh, Quentin Tarantino loves and has has uh, has kind of distilled into this, this uh, kind of film. And, that, you know, I was thinking there are some... You know, like black exploitation movies with female heroines and maybe anti heroines like the Pam Greer movies. And right. of course, you know, that he, by this point in his career, Tarantino had already made Jackie Brown with Pam Greer. So, you know, he was certainly aware of those as well. But there is something kind of interesting about the fact that it is a, a female anti heroine here and that a lot of her targets are female as well. And in volume one, it's all, she's going after all women. You know, uh, uh, Vivica A. Fox's character, Vernita Green, who's a mother, which has another sort of. A component of femininity to it uh you have her and then she goes after lucy Liu's character oren ishii who's this 
I guess she's like half Japanese, half Chinese American crime boss. She's the, like the crime lord of Tokyo. And of course, there's the famous sequence where she barges into the, the club or the restaurant where she's um, kind of hunkered down and kills all the members of the crazy 88s in this wild, frenetic sword fight with just outrageous amounts of, of blood and stuff. But yeah, it's it's funny because I was as I was watching it and thinking about it and thinking about the bride as an anti-hero, you know, it occurred to me that the fact that the movie is so time-scrambled actually increases the way in which the bride feels more like an anti-hero than a hero because um we don't really know fully what's happened to her and why. I mean, we we see in the very beginning of the movie we see her kind of all beaten up and, and upset, and we we don't see Bill, the man she wants to kill, but we he he shoots her and stuff. But we don't really know the backstory yet, right? And and then we dive into her first, or I guess technically it's the second, uh, second piece of revenge, the second member of the team she wants to kill. But she's the aggressor. She's the one who kind of barges into someone's house and is uh, trying to murder them. And it's interesting because I think it it kind of tests our sympathies and our and our ability to feel for this character because she's she's the aggressor she's the one who's going out and um and killing people and then later in the film we obviously learn more about her backstory and stuff like that but you know she's not just strictly going out and killing bill you know she kills a lot of people in this movie that you know she could potentially uh, I guess spare their lives or not be quite so violent or cruel or, you know, almost sadistic about it. So there is, I think there's definitely a way you can see her as an anti-hero. She also never learns revenge is wrong. Right. That's true. You know? too. There's that's... never this, like, this was terrible and I regret. Everything. No. And there's an element where she seems to be enjoying what she's doing too, which I think is also an anti-hero thing. This is not like I have to do this, you know, it's the right thing to do. It's like she wants to do it. She needs to clean well, clean there's house. Like, there's almost like a relishing of it. I oh, mean, in for that sure. first scene, in that scene where she kills Vivica Fox's character, and the daughter sees her, right, and she says, you know, if you gotta come after me someday, like I respect your right, right. to do that. Absolutely, but and again, but that doesn't stop her either. That the fact stop that her. she she temporarily, uh, briefly stops in f- killing her in front of the daughter, but you know, then the daughter disappears and they go back to it. So yeah. Is that what I think it is? You didn't think it was going to be that easy, did you? You know, for a second there? Yeah, I kind of did. Silly rabbit. Tricks are for kids. Just one other note that I want, uh, it sort of occurred to me as an interesting aside as I was watching it, is that you bring up the, the, the character of Bernita Green's daughter that, you know, sort of witnesses her mother's death or witnesses, you know, sees the aftermath of her mother's death. And and they have this moment where the bride tells her, you know, if you feel like you have to come kill me when you're older, you know, we'll deal with that at some point. And I think Tarantino has even said maybe someday he might want to make a third volume that would be about that, perhaps. But the movie as a whole is sort of about that idea, this these cycles of violence, you know, that these revenge, re, you know, venge or violence just begets more revenge and violence and that children are involved. You know, there's the there's Vivica A. Fox's daughter as a character. There's also the bride's daughter is certainly an important component to volume two as well. But I was just thinking that, you know, that this movie is so inspired by so many other movies and so many other revenge movies that in the same way that in the in the film revenge begets revenge and violence begets violence. It's like revenge movies inspire more revenge movies. It's like 
there's sort of a meta aspect to it that I think is kind of lovely as well. So if I'm being honest, I probably am assuming that most people that are listening to this have already seen Kill Bill Volumes 1 and 2. But if not, they are both available right now on Netflix. So you can do what we all couldn't do at the time when they were released, which is see them together in one big chunk. And sort of surprised they never went back and released them that way, at least in America. I don't think they've ever been released together on a yeah, DVD or a Blu-ray. I, I think internationally they have, but not not on a, like, there's no American Blu-ray box set, which is kind of shocking. But uh, yeah, Bill, uh, Kill Bill Volume 1 and 2, streaming now on Netflix. All right. Well, for my next pick, it's a film I'm going to guess that a lot of people who are listening to the are listening to the podcast have seen as well. But it's one that I was really happy to revisit. Uh, Election which is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, YouTube, and other outlets. Alexander Payne's 1999 comedy about a high school class presidential election and various other goings-on in the small community in Nebraska. Uh, But it's a movie in which all of the main characters think of themselves as the hero, as is reinforced by their various voiceovers. Uh, But that that's not actually necessarily the case uh, by how the, in, in terms of how the story plays out and also in terms of how they act. And one thing that I think is, is one of the, the kind of strongest points of the movie is that, you know, Jim McAllister, the high school teacher played by Matthew Broderick, who kind of paints himself as this nice guy, as this guy who adores teaching and is the you know, teacher of the year, uh, finds it so rewarding, loves his wife, Ha, you know, is general has this great life that that so much of that narrative is not actually proven true by how he behaves, including the way he lusts after and event- uh, like eventually sleeps with his best friend's ex-wife or the way that he tries to destroy the teenage girl that friend had an affair with partially as revenge and partially because she's just not likable. Uh, you know, and Tracy Flick, the character played by Reese Witherspoon, really wonderfully is i think in many ways the anti-heroine of this story she and what is great about tracy is that she's an anti-heroine even though she does everything right you know tracy flick is a character who has been following all of the rules is the top student is you know eager eager participant in everything is uh she needs a cobbler to give her a, a book of Nietzsche, I guess. Apparently. Except that ruthlessness is absolutely one of her, <laughs> her strong points already, you know. Uh, it's that um Jim McAllister tries to tangle with her mostly because she he doesn't feel she's likable enough. She is not acting like a hero, you know. She is not kind enough. She is not uh she is not humble enough, you know. The nicest character in this movie, uh, the one played by Chris Klein is like the, the, you know, nice, the lovely idiot basically. And he's also the person who tries the least hard who, to whom everything is given. Oh, hi Tracy. Who put you up to this? What do you mean? You just woke up this morning and suddenly decided to run for president? No, um, no, I, I just thought that, uh. Thought what? Well. I was talking to Mr. McAllister about my leg and how I still want to do something for the school. And so Mr. McAllister asked you to run? Well, um, I, I talked to him and everything, but he just said that he thought it would be a good idea and how there's all different kinds of fruits. And, um, and well, it's nothing against you, Tracy. I mean, you're the best. Uh, I, I just thought... Um, okay. 
You're on, Mr. Popular. I, I like that Tracy Flick is is the character who is basically like, you know, seizing opportunities with both hands and having to kind of claw her way through uh, from high school into college. And and she is she's not a very nice person, but I, I think the movie gives a lot of precedent to the fact that being a nice person is much easier when you have all kinds of advantages you know, that Tracy Flick is a kind of miserable, lonely person who is destined to not have many friends, but that she has to try harder and has to fight harder than a lot of other characters in the movie. Uh, and I, I think, you know, rewatching this movie now, and I hadn't seen it for a few years, that really comes through both her like isolation and the fact that like from any kind of distance uh, out removed from these subjective points of view of these different characters, she is the character you, you kind of want to root for. She's the one who has it the hardest and who is continuing to make life hard for herself, uh, you know, and her moments of, of misbehavior are so relatively small. Like when she tears down all of the posters in the school you know, the things that in which she is, the things that McAllister tries to punish her for are basically because she's not behaving like the, like the right kind of girl that, you know, the kind of girl he thinks she should be a likable kind of girl. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to, to Tammy Metzler, who is an anti-hero and anti-hero in herself. And it gets my favorite part of the movie, which is the speech in which she says, who cares about this elect this stupid election? Um, which, uh, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of destructive behavior, is kind of is the most unique of all. In that it's not like she's even being antagonistic to anyone in particular. She's trying to disrupt the whole system <laughs> and trying to trying to blow it up from within. Um, so I, you know, I think. This is a movie that I've gone back and forth on uh, in terms of how much I've liked it. I do think it's, I sometimes struggle a bit with how hard it is on all of the characters. It, it holds you a bit at a distance in that way, but it's also just so funny and so sharply observed in all of their imperfections. And I, I, I think that that like the character Tracy Flick I mean, she's the one you remember in the end from this movie. She is the most distinctive voice. And there's something very admirable about that. So that is Election, and it is available for rent on Amazon, iTunes, and other platforms. All right. Another great pick. My final pick, uh, probably a little bit of a surprising one. I don't know that I've seen this one pop up on too many anti-heroine or an female anti-hero lists, but it, it sort of dawned on me that it really works. And so I thought I would talk about it on the show. So... As a sort of explanation of why in the world I would pick this movie, I should say that I spent a large part of 2014 watching the complete works of one Julia Roberts. It was for a career view piece on her, which you can find at The Dissolve, the website I used to work for. And uh, Julia Roberts has some very popular films to her credit and also some of the worst movies that I've ever seen to her credit. <laughs> and there really weren't a ton of surprises going through her filmography one entry at a time. You know, it was like the famous movies, most of them were pretty good. And a lot of the movies that you'd never heard of or you never saw were never seen or flops for a very good reason. But one movie that did surprise me in a good way was My Best Friend's Wedding, which is directed by P.J. Hogan. 
and is available to rent right now on Amazon and iTunes. And what surprised me about My Best Friend's Wedding was that Julia Roberts is the star of the movie, playing a very Julia Robertsy character, this attractive, single woman looking for love. She's really not the hero of the movie. She's the protagonist, but I think you could argue she might be the villain of the movie. She's the bad guy, definitely. Uh, at the very least, she's the anti-heroine. <laughs> so the premise here, if you've never seen it, is that her character, Julianne, is in love with her best friend, Michael, who's played by Dermot Mulrooney. And back in college, the two of them made a vow... That if neither one was married, by the time they turned 28, they would marry each other. So Julianne's uh, 28th birthday is coming up. Michael calls. She naturally assumes he's calling to start planning a wedding with her. But oopsie, he's calling to say that in less than a week, he's marrying someone else, a college student from Chicago named Kimmy, played by Cameron Diaz. So Julianne reluctantly flies to Chicago to be in the wedding. But really what she's going to do is she decides she's going to try to undermine the wedding and try to break the couple up so she can have her best friend back all to herself and initially the schemes are pretty mild like she just kind of tries to embarrass Kimmy she makes her sing karaoke even though she doesn't want to but then then it escalates then she's basically full-scale sabotaging this marriage or this wedding you're Michael you're in a fancy French restaurant you order creme brulee for dessert it's beautiful it's sweet it's irritatingly perfect suddenly michael realizes he doesn't want creme brulee he wants something else what does he want jello jello why does he want jello because he's comfortable with jello Jello makes him comfortable. I realize compared to creme brulee, it's jello, but maybe that's what he needs. I could be jello. No. Creme brulee can never be jello. You could never be jello. You're never gonna be jello. Now, because Julianne is played by Julia Roberts, America's sweetheart, right? We initially are on her side. And it's only as the movie progresses that that we realize how manipulative she is, how cruel she is, and that we realize that she's kind of a terrible person. And I think that's what makes the movie so effective, is that it's this brilliant casting of Julia Roberts. Not really against type, per se, but it's sort of using her type, casting her in her type to trick us, to make us think that this woman is one thing and then slowly revealing over the course of the movie that she's another and actually kind of revealing to herself. She finally kind of comes to realize that she is, she's not very nice and she's doing these horrible things. And it is a funny movie and it has funny sequences, but it's also at times very dark. And, and that's what I like so much about it, that the fact that it is, that it is, it's basically a romantic comedy about a woman trying to destroy a happy couple. And there's not a lot of uh, romantic comedies that are about that. You know, that they're usually about the couple, not the woman on the outside who hates them, hates their happiness, and wants to destroy it. And there's something very interesting and refreshing about that. It seems like a, a subject that would be ripe for a lot of romantic comedies to do something with, but there really aren't that many like that. That this is one of the few of, that are out there. So... Yes, I watched a lot of Julia Roberts movies this year, and this was the one that um, 
really stuck out to me as a particularly effective and interesting one. And uh, if if you're you're looking for an an unusual anti heroine of the screen, I think Julianne from My Best Friend's Wedding absolutely fits the bill. You can rent that one now on Amazon and iTunes. That's a great pick, and has a great ending too. It does have an excellent ending. I didn't really talk about yeah, I where it give goes, it away, but like it, given how difficult the scenario is, it ends very well. I would say it ends basically perfectly and appropriately. I yes. think. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, we don't want to spoil it, but yeah, I, I definitely an, an anti-heroine for the ages <laughs> from my best friend's wedding. Admiring your handiwork? Touring the riot scene. Gravely assessing the devastation. Upstanding mayor stuff. You're not the mayor. Things change. What do you want? Ah, the direct approach. I admire that in a man with a mask. <laughs> you don't really think you'll win, do you? Things change. And that brings us to our listener's choice review. Every episode, we give you three options to vote on for our main review. And last time, your options were Joe Carnahan's Stretch, The Rocketeer, and Tim Burton's Batman Returns. And the two superhero movies were neck and neck for much of this voting, but Batman Returns held out in the end by a few votes. So Batman Returns is the 1992 sequel to 1989's Batman, which was also directed by Tim Burton and which starred Michael Keaton as Batman, Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and Kim Basinger as Vicki Vale. Batman Returns has Keaton back as Batman, the millionaire playboy slash vigilante, uh, and features two classic villains, the Penguin, a.k.a. Oswald Cobblepot, played by Danny DeVito, and Catwoman, a.k.a. Selina Kyle, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. Now, Batman Returns was a hit, but not nearly as big a, of one as the first film, which would lead Warner Brothers to bring in Joel Schumacher to direct Batman Forever in 1995, which in turn led Michael Keaton to choose not to return as Batman. He was replaced by Val Kilmer as the franchise took a turn into the cartoonish, family-friendly, and much worse, let's never forget the nipples on the Batsuit, um, it's part of the reason that Christopher Nolan's eventual reboot would feel so fresh. It's kind of gritty, realistic, somber approach felt miles away from what the franchise had become. Um, but Batman Returns is not cartoonish, though it is stylized. Mostly it's very Tim Burton-esque, particularly with the characterizations of the Penguin, who is this lecherous, cat-eating, beanbag-shaped mutant. Uh, with <laughs> etrodactyly bean bag shape. He's uh, I thought about it a lot and that's the best way I can describe it. He's always in that like weird union suit too. Uh yes. <laughs> and uh he has apparently black blood. And Catwoman, who is a repressed, abused secretary whose dark side comes out when she's tossed out a window to what's intended to be her death by her boss Max Shrek, played by Christopher Walken, uh in full Walken mode. A corrupt tycoon who gets one of my favorite lines in the film when he sees Batman unmasked and says, Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne why are you dressed up as Why Batman? are you dressed like Batman? <laughs> great line. It's great. Um, 
so and this is also a film that started with what becomes more often not the case in batman movies of doubling up on villains so my first question for you matt is what do you think of the amount of time this movie spends on its bad guys Mm. it actually devotes a lot of screen time to them much more than it does to batman yeah absolutely i that that's certainly one of the things that we would not be the first to identify but certainly was something i thought about as i was watching it is that this is almost a batman movie in name only at times that it's really much more the penguin and and catwoman than it is batman the first 30 40 minutes is really about both of them and you see batman once or twice he's off doing his own thing he's he's you know being batman off screen and see him like sitting in the dark and then the bat signal comes up and he's like and you're like were you just sitting there the whole time in the dark that is a ridiculous scene it's funny because you know i remember last episode when we were talking about this you said you'd seen this more than the original and i was like you know i've seen the original so many times but re-watching this for the first time in a long time i was like oh I have seen this movie a lot. I know every single scene. I know, I know, as particularly, I knew every line by the penguin. I'm going to play this city like a harp from hell. Yeah, yeah. I was, every, it was funny how much I remembered. It all came flooding back. But that scene, it's like, how does, how does Bruce Wayne have things on his house, bat, bat signal things on his house to reflect the bat signal <laughs> that no one notices? You feel like someone, that would be a giveaway. It'd be a little weird that Bruce Wayne. Uh, a guy who supposedly is not Batman to everyone that has his anyway. I thought that was really funny. That's a kid that never struck me as weird because it's a cool moment, you know, that he stands up. It looks amazing, but it makes no sense. But anyway, anyway, getting back to your original question. Uh, Yes, it is a little weird how little Batman figures into the movie, at least in the first half, but it's not a bad thing necessarily because the villains are so interesting. Uh, You have the penguin, this, sad tragic figure that's been abandoned by his parents and grows up in the sewers and has this disturbing sense of humor and is uh, beanbag shaped as you put it yes but you but you even as he's so horrible you do sort of sympathize with him and then you have uh, Catwoman who as much as I remembered loving this movie and liking Catwoman and this movie came out I guess when I was like 11 12 years old uh, and thinking she was really like kind of sexy and exciting at that age i'm like looking at it now going well this is an amazing character she's the greatest (laughs) that really i mean not only have sort of superhero movies since then in the same way that like Babyface is sort of still like this really good example of something we don't see enough of like same could be said for catwoman in this like has there been any female characters in any superhero movies as good as her since this movie i can't think of one or as complicated like as psychologically complicated right as interesting and complicated and flawed and sexy and alluring and, and disturbing scary, yeah. and scary and funny and smart and yeah you don't you just don't see that many characters like her and and the fact that that we got a catwoman movie with halle berry that is what it is when this Catwoman, who's so fantastic, did not get her own movie, is a travesty. It is one of the great travesties in Hollywood history that this character was just, you know, discarded when she so, so interesting. So does not bother me in the slightest that it is the Penguin and Catwoman show for most of the movie. And then when Batman comes in, I think he's really good. And I think he has great chemistry with Michelle Pfeiffer. And I think he works well with the penguins. So yeah, I, I rewatching this, I thought it it held up really well. It might even hold up better than the than the first Batman. I don't know. Yeah, I really I like 
like you, I have seen this. We had this on VHS growing up, so I have it so ingrained in my memory. But I I do think that it's it's very endearingly odd the fact yes. that that you introduce Penguin and have him be so grotesque, like deliberately grotesque, and then have his storyline involve running for mayor is is certainly odd. Uh and that you have this kind of outlandish villain and then you have this very real like regular one you know one of the things that i love about the catwoman storyline is that the person that she wants to destroy is her old boss is like she's focused on him and also on the fact that even though she knows all of these things about the the terrible things that he has done she's very aware of the fact that he he would never get a legal comeuppance right right but like that's where her rage comes from a lot is that he's able to get away with all of these things including pushing her out the window uh, like apparently like very glibly (laughs) it's just like murders his secretary or tries to and has no no fears about getting caught like treats people as that discardable yeah you know and there's like actual there's an interesting frustration in that of Mm. being like the only way to take someone like this down is to go nuts and to break the rules. Yeah, and I love the way that that even though Batman is sort of not in the spotlight, he's sort of reflected in these characters. I mean, Penguin is very clearly like a dark kind of doppelganger of Batman, right? Wait, he what comes does he from say? He says like um you're jealous of me because I'm a real freak. Right. Yeah. And you have to wear a mask and he says you may be right or something like yeah. that. And and he is he's sort of like the the dark version of of Batman instead of losing his his parents being murdered his parents discard him and throw him away and so he comes from privilege but he's sort of at the bottom of the of the food chain so to speak and uh, so there's sort of it's it, it's sort of like the the bizarro world version of Batman in a sense you know and that you know his beanbag shape sort of kind of kind of is an interesting also contrast with Batman who although I guess in the he's not Christian Bale he's not ripped to the gills he's wearing you know he's wearing a muscle suit but there's certainly a dichotomy there between the heroic muscular Batman and the beanbag shaped <laughs> penguin and then you have Catwoman who is sort of is sort of uh kind of she has I guess she has a family we we hear a, a, a message mom. from her mom yeah. but there's kind of an orphan quality to her and she's also been sort of you know, like Penguin, she's also been sort of discarded in a way, right? And that she's been, you know, her boss has tried to kill her. And what an incredible shot when he kills her and, and he throws her out the window and, and the camera follows right behind her and is going through the, the over the, what are they called? The awnings. Yeah. She falls through like three, four awnings in a row and the camera goes through all of them. God, I, I, I sort of, as the shot was about to happen, I was like, oh, I remember that shot. And it is just as good as I thought. Yeah. The, the, the camera work in this movie is consistently exciting and interesting It reminds and fun. you of like, how good Tim Burton can be yes. as a filmmaker. Where is this I Tim know. Burton? Where well, have you even, gone? Even the, the scene after that, like the scene where she kind of wakes up, is also so disturbing. so disturbing when all of these cats are swarming over her. And, yeah, like, nibbling on nibbling her bloody on her, finger. Yeah, and she's like having a seizure, basically. Right. It's Yeah, I, I, the character is not is not softened in that right. way. Like that origin story is by no means pretty. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I also, I just, I love that she, she is not something so simple as like a feminist Avenger. Mm. You know, there's the scene in which she, she saves a woman from being raped, basically from being assaulted and possibly raped. And the woman is like, Oh, thank you. And she says, you make it so easy, <laughs> you know, like I, I, that she, she actively rejects, rescue including like towards the end when right she says that 
I would love to go live with you in your castle. Right. Just like, like in a fairy like tale. Just like in a fairy tale, but I couldn't live with myself. Right. I mean, she gets a lot of great lines. And I a think lot like, of great yeah, lines. Those, the idea that she's not looking, she, she's getting, right? Like this is something that she needs to do herself, that it's not about justice or about being saved. Um, also, yeah, she has the, uh, when they're fighting, she's how could you? I'm a woman. Right. And, then, like, and he's and like, I'm like, sorry. Yeah, and then and she, yeah, she, she fights dirty in yes, the best way in possible. In the best way possible. Yeah. And I, I, I already mentioned that, you know, that I did when you're, you know, when you're 12 years old and this cat woman comes out in that costume, it does kind of blow your mind. But I was kind of struck by like how sexy and how like wonderfully like physical she is in the role too. the way she walks and moves and kind of poses and struts. It's just like, the, the physicality of her performance is so fantastic. And in that leather, you know, Vinyl bondage suit, gear, yeah. whatever it is, that could not have, I'm sure she couldn't move in that thing. So the fact that she works it the way she does uh, is really incredible. I mean, Batman is, uh, Michael Keaton as Batman is fine, but, you know, he does look a little stiff. You know, I think he works it well enough. He kind of has this kind of, kind of hulking kind of physicality to him. He seems like you couldn't knock him over if you dropped a, a building on him, partly because I, I think he physically like could not move. He couldn't turn his head. And I think he found a way to make it work for the character. But Michelle Pfeiffer does have this kind of, and, and her stunt doubles who are doing all her backflips and whatnot. Right. But there's something about that character that seems so lithe and physical. And right. it's just well, like, like the way when they erotic fight, too. When they fight even. And like, you know, the... Yeah, she seems so free, which is interesting given that the character before is deliberately made to be so mousy and kind of like physically restrained, right? right? Like it's this id like breaking forth and being just so much more liberated. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, it's it, she's great at that. There's not a lot of ways, as I was looking at this movie, we already said how the Catwoman character as sort of female superheroes or at least characters in superhero movies go really hasn't been surpassed. You know, it's this. It, it, this is a bizarre movie that probably you know was the biggest of the big in terms of blockbusters. It, it made a lot of money. Didn't do as well as the first Batman, but the fact that a studio made this and that made this with, the, with Batman with their with their cash cow, their bat cash cow, as it were. I was thinking as I was watching it, it's like, what if any of this movie would be made this way today? Anything about it? Would anything about it be the same? You know, you wouldn't be allowed to have Michael Keaton because he doesn't look like a hero, right? He's right. not muscular. He's kind of losing his hair. He's a, he's kind of mousy too, you know. Like yeah, and a, their their romance, like their as as their as their alter egos, their real life alter egos, is also like very charming and very weird. Yes, like they they are both like they're awkward weirdos. people. Yes, and they have like a great like when they're on a date that date together. It's and. They're making out and trying not to hide their, their bruises and scars. Yes. Amazing scene. It's a great scene. Fantastic scene. Right. Okay. Yeah. So Michael Keaton is out. No. Michelle Pfeiffer is 34 when this movie is made. Really? Yes. Wow. So probably not. She's not getting the part. Not getting the part. For certain. And I doubt, I doubt we would get, I mean, I guess in that, uh, the Dark Knight Rises, we had a Catwoman, right? Yeah. Who's good. She's good. She but was, she's she nothing. was younger. She's nothing on this though. It's no, funny. And her, and her costume, while still kind of like a cat suit, was certainly not as like bondagey and weird yeah. and, and edgy in that way. And then Danny DeVito, I mean, I don't know. He's just, he's, he's so, he like, he makes dirty jokes, you know, and, and the, the way the movie opens with his parents, 
of course, his, his father is Pee Wee Herman, which is a hilarious <laughs> thing that went right over my head when I was a kid. But just that, his, you know, being abandoned by his parents and living in the sewers and he's got this weird goop coming out of his mouth. His and teeth he, are black. His teeth are black. And, and he, he also, he, his like breathing is always like, labored uh, right? Like always. Yeah. He's a mo- yeah, he really feels like a, like a German expressionist monster. And it's like, that's not getting that's not getting through either him eating the fish there's like so many different things about it that just feel him biting the nose the guy's nose right. that scene is so like stood oh, out in my and mind the blood so spat- clearly oh, yeah god so i guess uh, this is very long-winded way of saying that i enjoyed happen. this movie as a kid although it seemed weird to me but now looking at it it, it almost seems more interesting than it was then because it just sticks out as Movie as much as I enjoy the the a lot of the comic book movies we get today, they are so much more processed and they feel more like products. They're safe. They they're are. safe. They're designed to appeal to the biggest possible audience. Batman Returns does not feel like that. It feels like a Tim Burton movie. It feels weird. It's full of all this this stuff, you know that that I do, the, the psychological damage of these characters and the issues they're going through is something that is definitely not foregrounded in modern comic book movies the way it is here any other things we want to touch on before we wrap things up no that's it other than i really like i do really love the michelle pfeiffer catwoman character and it makes me sad a little to watch this movie and then to say like even you know the black widow who is growing into becoming a good character right like has nothing like nothing on her just in terms of like what in terms of like the personality they've put on her and the kind of backstory and the damage, as you right. said, like I, you know, I she's had love- a, she's had a little bit, she, you know, like Joss Whedon gave her a, 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 some nice moments in the Avengers. But other than that, I mean, and she had some nice moments in the second Captain America, I guess a little bit. And Scarlett Johansson is a, is a good actress and I enjoy watching her, but a lot of it does feel like she's there as eye candy. Yes. You know what I mean? And she's good at it. She's a beautiful woman and she's effective in that role. But Catwoman kind of feels like a critique of a, of this other character, yeah. which didn't come until after her, you know, which is sort of is sort of a shame. The one other thing I wanted to mention, and this is another thing that, you know, like goes over your head as a kid. Um, and I, I, I the, the first Batman movie is, I think I might have even mentioned on our last episode when I recommended the first Batman, like Batman murders a lot of people in that movie. <laughs> and in this one, he doesn't murder a lot of people. They tamp that down. But there's that one scene where I think he's trying to dispose of a bomb and uh, a big, strong circus gang guy which is another yeah. weird element of this movie the circus gang yes and they just linked up with uh the, the penguin. penguin right they have a pre-existing gang i guess circus themed gangs <laughs> whatever so uh he basically straps this ticking time bomb to a guy and throws him into a sewer and the guy blows up he murder he straight up murders the guy <laughs> and i have to say as a kid i didn't think anything of it and i was like oh batman murdered that guy that's another thing that does feel a little weird and i don't i get uh, for better or for worse, I doubt Batman would would do that in uh, in a, in the Dark Knight today. I mean, there's a couple of times in the Chris Nolan ones where he sort of like does nothing and kind of by proxy murders people. But I don't remember him strapping bombs to anyone and blowing them up. That's pretty harsh. Yeah, that's not very PG-13. That is not PG-13 either. And yet <laughs> this movie got away with it. No. So two very strong recommendations for a weird, weird, weird comic book movie that uh, not only holds up well, but I think is aging very well, maybe becoming a better movie with time than it was in 1992. That's Batman Returns, and it is streaming now on Netflix.
every episode in our Behind the Eight Ball section, we give you three recommendations of things that are new to streaming, two that were recommended by you guys, the listeners, and one item chosen randomly from our Netflix My Lists. Matt, you're going first. Are you ready? Yes. Okay, three new releases. All right. First up, I've got the most recent film from Alexander Payne, who you mentioned earlier, the director of Election. It is Nebraska. Bruce Dern stars as Woody, an elderly, possibly senile man who's gotten it into his head that he's won one of those uh, publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. And his son, David, who's played very well in the film by Will Forte, doesn't think for a moment that he's right, but he reluctantly agrees to go with his dad to supervise him, basically, as he travels to Lincoln, Nebraska, where he will supposedly collect his million-dollar prize. And along the way, the father and son talk. They sort of bond. They discuss their past. Um, and David learns about his father's life and his family's history. Certainly not the most upbeat movie you're going to find about the American heartland, but the movie's gorgeous Black and white photography really fits nicely with this melancholy story about uh, mortality and family and fading dreams. I found it to be a very affecting uh, movie. So that's Nebraska, streaming on Netflix and also on Amazon Prime, streaming on both of them right now. Next up, streaming on Hulu, is Flashpoint. It's a 2007 Hong Kong action film starring Donnie Yen. Uh, The movie does have a plot. But you don't need to know about that. All you really need to know is that it has Donnie Yen beating up people in awesome ways. It has cool fight scenes, um, lots of them. And not only does it have Donnie Yen fighting in them, but he choreographed it as well. The man is a true renaissance man. Uh, It is a good but kicking time. If you haven't seen it, it is recommended. That is Flashpoint streaming on Hulu. And finally, going all the way back to the silent era for my final recommendation, it's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which is directed by, I'm guessing it's probably pronounced Robert Vine, W-I-E-N-E. Uh, it's one of the premier horror films of the silent era, a classic example of German expressionism, probably uh, influenced Batman Returns, I yeah, imagine. definitely. Has extremely stylized sets and moody lighting. The doctor of the title is a hypnotist. The film follows a man who's investigating him, suspects him of a bunch of murders. Uh, if you've never seen Dr. Caligari, it really is fantastic. Uh, it does. It does kind of feel. I don't want to say it, you know it's a silent movie. It doesn't. It, it doesn't really feel modern, but it'll feel familiar because even though it's a hundred years old, movies are still ripping this film off, uh, right down to the ending. So, if you've never seen it, really a wonderful film that is worth checking out. That's the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, streaming on Netflix. Two listener recommendations. All right, my first comes from a gentleman named Matt in Brooklyn, and I swear it's not me. He's going to recommend Phase 4. He says, Esteemed and celebrated movie title designer Saul Bass directed only one film during his lifetime, and it is the horror sci-fi mashup Phase 4. It's a curious entry in the nature run amok subgenre about a group of scientists observing a hyper-intelligent colony of ants in the Arizona desert, only to realize too late they are being observed by their six-legged subjects. While not a classic, the film features some incredible macro photography of the sentient ants doing their thing, a Pink Floyd-esque psychedelic rock score, and overall, it is a notable cut above many B-flicks of its ilk. Starring familiar character face Michael Murphy, who you might know from Manhattan in Tanner 88, British actor Nigel Davenport, and the stunning Lynn Frederick, who would become better known as Mrs. Peter Sellers at the end of his life. Uh, Phase 4. This is a movie I have absolutely heard about, and I did notice that it recently came to Netflix. I've never seen it. I've heard it is kind of awesome, actually, and that the photography is crazy. 
And it certainly is notable in a historical sense as the one film from Saul Bass. Have you seen it, Allison? I have not, and I was excited to see it turn up on streaming. Yeah, I definitely, I already added it to my my list myself. I'm looking forward to uh, checking this one out. So great recommendation there from Matt in Brooklyn, who is not me. And next up, we have a recommendation from Mark F. And Mark writes in and says, If you haven't checked out Danger 5 on Hulu, then you absolutely must. Season 2 is coming in the next couple months, and at six episodes of about 25 minutes each, you can zip through the show super fast. Matt, this has you written all over it. A mm-hmm. ridiculous spy version of the Thunderbirds. It's a live-action comedy as Danger 5 try to stop Hitler from taking over the world. It has sexy bulletproof women, an animatronic German shepherd, and recipes for excellent cocktails. Not to be missed. That sounds pretty good to me. It does sound like it's my kind of show. I'm going to have to add that to my Hulu. Hulu Q. That's uh, Danger 5 streaming on Hulu, and that's a recommendation from Mark F. Thank you, Mark. All right, one from your My List. Hilariously and improbably, you gave me number 99, and somehow, I can't even believe this is possible, the movie in my number 99 slot on my Netflix My List right now, Allison, yes. has the number 99 in the title. I wow. swear to you this is real. I didn't make it up. I could not believe this. It's the film 99 River Street by B-movie specialist Phil Carlson. Carlson is one of these great under-the-radar directors who's really not very famous but made a lot of lean, brisk, really good, tough action movies and thrillers all through the middle of last century. Never really kind of became super famous, but he's made a lot of good movies. I love his heist movie, Kansas City Confidential, which is notable as being one of the big influences on Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs. Um, he also made Scandal Sheet and the original version of Walking Tall, which was later remade with The Rock. 99 River Street, though, is the only Phil Carlson movie that's currently streaming on Netflix, which is why I have it on my my list. Here's the plot synopsis. When his cheating wife is murdered, failed bos- boxer Driscoll becomes the police's prime suspect and must track down her lover to prove his innocence. So that is 99 River Street streaming on Netflix. Allison, are you ready for your countdown here? I'm ready. All right, let's start with three new titles. Okay, first off, new to Netflix is Boy Meets Girl. This is Leos Carax's directorial debut from 1984. Uh, how does this sound in terms of a plotline for a Leos Carax movie? Uh, Denny Levant star, plays a heartbroken filmmaker who meets a suicidal young woman who was also recently left by her lover. It sounds about right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's a black and white film that, you know, reportedly... It, it was he. Leos Cracks was very young when he made it, but it was a film that got him a lot of attention. Uh, played at Cannes, uh, and Netflix actually has several of his movies streaming at the moment. In addition to Lovers on the Bridge, which I believe we spoke about, uh, and Holy Motors, which is a film his rec- most recent film, which we both like, uh, and Mauvais Sang. There's also a doc about him that came out this year called Mr. X. So if you are interested in learning more about him, that is also currently streaming on Netflix. Also new to Netflix, uh, and I, you know, this is actually a film I haven't seen, and I've been wanting to see it forever. It has not been easy to see. Los Angeles plays itself. Oh yeah, if you wouldn't recommend this one, you already you called it before I could get <laughs> to it. But this is one of my favorite movies, so go ahead. Yeah, well, it's you know from CalArts, directed by CalArts professor Tom Anderson, uh, and it is a beloved doc, which because for clearance issues has been very difficult to see for the decade plus that it has been out uh you used to have to see it mostly if you're not seeing it illegally you'd see it 
where with Anderson there to present it basically. But it is a film about Los Angeles on screen and it is made up entirely of clips of other films uh, with narration and looks at Los Angeles as it's used as a subject of a movie, as it's used as a character in a movie and as background in a movie and, you know, is is really it's it's a, a film that has a lot of fans which is not always not always what you would think would be the case for a video essay about you know about filmmaking right right but that's that's a good way to describe it i'd say if you like going on youtube and watching video essays about you know filmmakers or actors or whatever this is the ultimate video essay it sort of predates youtube it's and it, i think i actually think it was maybe influential on a lot of people in, in in sort of inspiring video essays because it's like a three hour just video essay from this guy kind of very crankily but entertainingly talking about the city he loves that he feels is not always depicted properly on screen and, and you given see, how often it is on screen as well right it's not not always fairly put on there and he talks about all these different films a lot of them you'll probably never have heard of before but you'll be interested in seeking out after this movie it's just really fantastic it's really one of my favorites so yeah i'm glad we're recommending it los angeles plays itself check yes. it out finally available and finally uh now streaming on amazon prime uh under the skin the film we talked about on svu episode 63 jonathan glazer's film about a predatory but solitary and eventually vulnerable alien played by Scarlett Johansson roaming around Scotland looking for men to seduce and turn into skin bags or something you know I as we approach the end of the year and start kind of thinking about year end lists I, this movie just looms larger and larger for me I think it's pretty tremendous and now you have a chance if you have an Amazon Prime membership to take another look at it on streaming, and I think it's certainly worth it. Okay, how about two listener recommendations? We got two people recommending the same movie, so uh, always a good sign. That movie is Big Night, which is currently streaming on Netflix. Teresa writes, I'm not a dullard. I know you spoke about it earlier on this show, or maybe it was the IFC podcast, but I watched this movie because of your recommendation. You know how good it is. It is that good. Now <laughs> I don't need to tell you guys. Now it's on Netflix, so watch it all. You shan't be disappointed. And Jeffrey notes uh, that he would also like to recommend Stanley Tucci's Big Night it's, uh, for everyone's Thanksgiving season. And it is certainly a great movie about food. Yes. Um, though I will add the warning that it will make you want to have a Timbalo, despite the fact that it looks both very elaborate to make and is probably not easily found in any restaurant in your area. So, fair warning. Uh, and then Jedediah recommends, uh, has a few recommendations. He writes, I dig crime flicks and crime fiction and keep the blog Hardboiled Wonderland where I discuss both. Two of the best I've seen this year are Filipino exports depicting Manila's underground as populated by marginalized characters far more sympathetic than those who occupy its overworld. Both are so terrifically atmospheric in their treatment of the urban jungle, you could swear they were shot in smellovision. On the Job is a multifocal traffic-esque look at the lucrative market of political assassination following two prisoners who work as assassins smuggled out of prison for 24 hours to hit specific targets and smuggled back behind bars. The politicians who are their targets and the police trying to pick up their trail. 
Metro Manila is about a desperately poor farmer who brings his family to the city when he can't scrape a living out of the rice fields any longer. He eventually lands a job on a security team driving armored vehicles and becomes caught between the ruthless, legit business interests that employ him and other desperate characters trying to steal the payloads he transports. On the Job and Metro Manila are both streaming on Netflix. Um, and those sound awesome, yeah. uh, Jedediah. I had not heard of... I mean, I'd heard of Metro Manila only in passing. Those both sound really interesting, and I will add those to my my list. Thanks for the recommendation. Awesome. Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. You gave me number 88, which is The Brass Teapot. It's a 2012 film starring Michael, Michael Angarano and Juno Temple as a couple who find a magical brass teapot that provides them with money, but only if they hurt themselves. Uh, this was not a very well-received movie when it came out, but I found the concept interesting enough that I added it to my my list. To the bottom of your to my list. To the bottom of my my list. So if every of 87 other films and television shows <laughs> magically disappear from right. Netflix. And no new ones ever come nothing out. nothing else is added. Then I will get to This will be the next it. thing you watch. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> and I like both those cast members, but yes, it's kind of hovering down towards the bottom of my list. Oh, you know what, Allison? We didn't do Singer and No More's completely concise and totally succinct new release or la- roundup before we went through our uh, eight ball picks here. Are there any new movies you want to talk about before we uh, move on to our listener choice options for our next episode? Well, you know, you mentioned Hunger, Hunger Games, Games Mocking colon, Mockingjay, Dash, Dash part, part one. Uh, and I think, you know, I feel like we both feel fairly similarly about it, which is that it has some interesting stuff, but then. It just it's ends. a well-made half of a movie. Yes, I, you know there. I understand absolutely why studios are dragging these very successful money, franchises money, money, money. out. Exactly, but that this this one does not feel well served by that at no. all. I mean, no, I no, really, no. I feel like as YA adaptations and kind of big blockbusters go, Katniss is a very is a good character, and I feel yep. like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in terms of propaganda and how it's used as a weapon, but like not a lot happens in this movie no i i it's it boggles my mind that some people because i wrote a piece for screen crush i think i mentioned about part one and part twos and how they're kind of destroying these climactic franchise entries it's like that's the new thing to do it's like the last movie in a big series break it up because you get one more movie you, you drag it out you get a lot you know you just make more money and uh, you know i don't begrudge uh studios for trying to make more money that's what they do but it's they're it's they're doing it not in the service of the storytelling and i really felt it here and i wrote that piece and some people were like oh you just hate serialized storytelling and this is actually you know like this is a good movie a lot of you know like there's characters there's a lot of character stuff you just want to see explosions and it's like no no i I want want stuff to happen stuff to happen right yeah you know there's a there's some stuff with the characters here but a lot of it is just sitting around in this like it's like, hey, you remember the human scenes from the Matrix Revolutions? It's Zion. It's definitely very Zionist. Uh, get ready for that for like the whole movie, and there's no Matrix part, and it's people sitting around. And I've never seen so many scenes in one movie set in a mess hall. There's like ten scenes set in this one mess hall, <laughs> and just sitting around talking and eating. It's like Seinfeld as like <laughs> unfunny Seinfeld as a blockbuster. Nothing happens. It's sit- sitting around talking about you know like their dating lives a little bit and and eating i feel like it would be less it would feel less like evidently like just 
kind of like you cash left. grabby yeah if they had the other film ready to go like next month or something maybe you know but maybe. like it's not coming out for a year i know the new one is not coming out until november 2015 right and that just given the way this one ends it does feel like like really like yeah eh? I mean, I like the last the last Hunger Games I movie the last a Hunger lot. Game was great, right? So it's and, not and like this I'm one feels like it could have been a great movie. Absolutely, and it's like I think they have a good cast. It's a great cast, frankly. The supporting yeah. cast is unbelievable for this movie. Late Philip Seymour Hoffman, late Philip Seymour Hoffman, Julianne Moore, just on and on, and you're just going. I wish these people had something to do besides sit around and like, should we do this? Should we not do this? We could maybe do this. And I'll, okay, I'll be the Mockingjay. Well, I'm not going to be the Mockingjay yet. First, you have to do this. Well, we won't do that. Well, then I won't be your Mockingjay. It's like. It just it just feels like like uh, it feels stretched. It feels like they've stretched out the beginning of a story in a in a very unsatisfying way. Yeah. And it, I, I I just feel like if they, they had turned this, I bet I bet the second half will be great, and we'll just feel like they could have turned this two hour movie into the first thirty minutes of a two hour and thirty minute masterpiece of blockbusterness, and that we're just it's a shame that we're not going to get that. Yeah. Uh, and then we both saw Horrible horrible Bosses 2, which yes. is coming out this upcoming week, and which I thought was pretty horrible. Yes. Was, yes, indeed. <laughs> As advertised. Truth in advertising, <laughs> yes. It's I don't... Yeah, I mean, like, I, I remember Did liking, you like the first movie? I mean, as much as I remember it. It was not like a... It did not seem to me a terrible, mem terribly memorable movie, but no. I feel like I thought I it was funny. It. Yeah. yeah, and it had. I thought the first movie really had... What was fun about the first movie were the bosses, the horrible bosses, you know, you have Colin some, yeah, Farrell... Like, Kevin Spacey, Jennifer Aniston all looked like they were having a great time and it was really fun watching them be evil. Right, to play against type and to really get like crazy. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Kevin Spacey is still like the best part in this movie, I felt Did like. Did you the, think the so? The second one. Yeah, but I mean like he's, he's in about he's three, in scenes. three scenes. Yes. And uh not to spoil anything, but it uh, you know, this movie has like the the credits cookies where you see them uh, not cookies, but uh outtakes. Where they're 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 you see them flubbing their lines. Yeah. And when Kevin Spacey has his and he's flubbing lines, you you could see him looking at his script. His script is sitting in front of it him is. basically. He clearly just came in. Like and yet one he's day, still yeah, he still was the most enjoyable part for me. I thought he was okay. I mean I thought I still found Jennifer Aniston to be a lot of fun, you know, uh kind of verging on anti heroin territory with her character who's sort of very explicitly sexual and but I, I find her very kind of good in the role. She's having a lot still having fun with it being this kind of anti-Rachel figure. I just found that the new bosses or the new characters who sort of fill in as the evil bad guy it's, guys. It has a great cast again. I mean, you've got Chris, Chris Pine, Pine and Christoph Waltz. Waltz. Yeah. Christoph Waltz just does not look like he's happy to be there. He doesn't have a lot to Even do. Even like, he has like the most miserable after credits blooper scene. Yes. It's like, it, like you can tell he is miserable. <laughs> yes. He just, and he just doesn't have a lot to do. And, and I thought Chris Pine was a very convincing, like, nutty guy like he's plays this sort of you know kind of psychopathic character or sociopathic character and i thought he was convincing at it but again he just doesn't have a lot to do or he doesn't really it's not it's mostly it just doesn't feel like there's any jokes it's mostly just it's the just three main guys ripping bickering desperately and, bickering. and i don't i like sir, like not long into the movie i was like i wish all of these characters would die <laughs> like they're just because they like it's so much about them be, like bickering and kind of like making right, right. like doing the whole joke things. is they're just not good at any crime <laughs> <laughs> they're not good at anything but mostly that they're not good at crime and they always make mistakes and 
and it's sort of almost, they're almost like the three stooges but instead of like physical gags at each other they just constantly make jokes and t- make, say stupid lines and are kind of ribbing one another yeah and i thought like they just barely got by in the first movie where it started to wear thin but they they pulled it out but in this one almost immediately they seem like they're just out of out of jokes they're out of ideas and it's just We've got three funny people. Surely that's enough, Allison, to make a funny movie if they just sit around and make fun of each other. And I, I, there were a couple of times I laughed. I thought the the sequence that involves a a, a sex addiction support group was mildly funny. Yeah. I laughed a couple of yeah. times at that scene. But I have to say I was really bored by by the by like the end of this movie. Some of them movie. are painful. Like some of yeah. those scenes are just painful. Like, yeah. So. It's a shame. I did enjoy the first movie. Yeah. I would I would mildly and recommend the first movie, and, and I like, like a lot so of the people in it. There's so much talent like involved. Yeah. It's actually insane, like how much screen talent is involved in what is in this case like a just lack of a movie. <laughs> well, that's the theme. Of, that's the theme of the week, right? Great people, incredible casts that are right. in these kind of no ha- either half baked premises or just you know underdeveloped you know uh, stories or scripts that have been so watered down. That it's not enough. You can't just have those those people. They've got you got to give them something interesting to do. So, not a, not a great week at the at the movies. But there's a lot of good stuff coming up. So I'm sure we'll have more positive th- things to say in the future. Let's get to the listeners' choice options for our next episode. We are approaching December. We're approaching end of the year. We're approaching list making season. So we've got a couple of movies here that uh, we haven't seen. Need to catch up with before we make our lists. So that's the theme of our choices. This time, and the first one, I guess it's we're going to do both parts, I assume, if we pick it. I think we have to. <laughs> They're both there. I, I had already seen volume one, and I will spoil this enough to say that I, I was so underwhelmed by part one that I did not watch part two yet. So I still need to see part two. Allison has seen none of it? I have seen none of it. It, it, just, is it came out around it, like right when I got hired back. Switching jobs? Doing, yes, and I just couldn't make it work timing-wise. Well, it is, if you couldn't figure it out already, it is Nymphomaniac Volumes 1 and 2, which is streaming now on Netflix. And this is the epic tale of sex addiction and fly fishing, fly fishing and all manners of tawdry pursuits from Lars von Trier. It stars Charlotte Gainsbourg and Stacey Martin as the title uh, character Joe. And it co-stars Stellan Skarsgård, Shia LaBeouf, Uma Thurman, Connie Nielsen, Christian Slater, Jamie Bell, Willem Dafoe, Udo Kior, on and on and on. It also stars a bunch of adult film stars who performed some of the hardcore sex scenes in the film and whose faces were then digitally replaced by the actors. That was how they, they had these really graphic sex scenes in the movie without having the actors actually have sex with one another. So that's clearly what CGI was invented for, I think, right? I, I feel like all, yeah, all to of find technology new ways. was leading up to ways to make it look like famous people are naked and having sex with one another. That's right. That's right. So uh, I've seen half of it. And uh, but I would be willing to try it again. You know, and I'll admit that when I saw it, I wasn't in, you know, I wasn't maybe in the greatest and most attentive frames of mind. I'll admit it was pretty late at night when I watched it. Um, so I, I, I and I do want to uh, finish it out. Allison obviously has to see see it. So if we if it's chosen, it's a it's a good because it'll force us to watch something that I think <laughs> we're somewhat reticent to watch. It's another one of these movies where it's divided in half, and I have yeah. to say, I it you know that it didn't really. It is another movie, though, like Kill Bill, that has chapters. So I suppose in that sense it's maybe more suited to it, but I, I wasn't... Uh, yeah, I should say, I really like Lars von Trier. Yeah, me too. I don't know what it is with this one where after all of the hype coming up to it when it finally came out, I was like, 
I don't actually really feel like seeing this movie. <laughs> well, if you'd like to make Allison watch it anyway, you can vote for that. That's option one. Nymphomaniac Volumes 1 and 2 streaming on Netflix. All right. Our second pick is also streaming on Netflix. Uh, and I'm going to turn this recommendation over to Kyle from Victor- Victorville, California, who actually sent in a recommendation for this today. As the end of the year approaches, I wanted to recommend a film from earlier in the year that some might want to catch up with before their best, uh, finalizing their best of lists. Currently streaming on Netflix, Stranger by the Lake is a French erotic thriller set at a lake where men cruise for casual hookups. After witnessing what appears to be a murder, Frank gives into his passion against better judgment and begins a torrid affair with the man responsible. It is an atmospheric and tense film with some outstanding performances. A warning should be made that given the film's highly graphic sexual content, it's probably not the not best to watch with the family as the holidays approach. Um, so this is a film that's actually gotten some serious praise. It came out very early in the year, uh, premiered at Cannes last year. Um, it's a real favorite of people. So it's one that's been on my list to catch up with. And I, I think there's probably a lot we could talk about uh, in terms of themes there if it is the one you pick. All right, so that's going to be option number two, Stranger by the Lake, streaming now on Netflix. And finally, our third option is available for rent on iTunes and Amazon, another movie we've been waiting to catch up with. We just haven't had a chance yet. This is a good opportunity for us to do so. It's the film Cold in July. It's a crime film starring Michael C. Hall, Sam Shepard, and Don Johnson, and it's based on the novel by Joe Lansdale. Uh, It's also directed by Jim Mickle, who previously directed Stakeland, which uh, is a really solid little indie vampire movie from a few years back. So there's a lot of uh, appeal for this one for me, Allison. Um, Let me read the plot description I've got here. It says, How can a split-second decision change your life? While investigating noises in his house one balmy Texas night in 1989, Richard Dane, Michael C. Hall, puts a bullet in the brain of lowlife burglar Freddy. Although he's hailed as a small-town hero, Richard soon finds himself fearing for his family's safety, when Freddy's ex-con father, Ben, played by Sam Shepard, rolls into town, hell-bent on revenge. So that's option number three, Cold in July, and you can rent that right now on Amazon or iTunes. So which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to svu at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, December 1st at noon. After that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, and you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on our next episode, which should be out on or around Tuesday, December 9th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU Remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick, but in the meantime... You can follow us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer, and you can follow the show at Film Spotting SVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions from you guys, the SVU listeners. Don't forget to keep sending us your streaming suggestions. Email them to svu at filmspottingsvu.com. We love to read them on the show. And if you're enjoying the show, why not leave us a review in iTunes? It always helps reach new listeners. 
For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.